Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Step outside your intellectual comfort zone. Don't keep reading the one website. Don't keep reading, you know, the one Twitter. I don't know, it's... Question. Don't believe a fucking thing you read or you're told. That's Michael Ware, and this is episode 175 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 175 of the show with legendary war correspondent Michael Ware. More about him in just a moment. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the legends who support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Osher, O-S-H-E-R. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they are not free to make. And if you're able to, if you can spare five bucks a month, you'll have access to exclusive episodes and a great warm fuzzy feeling inside you that you're helping this show every single week. My team, Andy and Haley, work very hard to make sure this show happens every week and I want to pay them what they're worth. I still do it for free, but at least I'm able to pay my crew and that helps me enormously because I can pay them and they help me make the show every single week. Uh, there is a new exclusive in your inbox if you're a supporter of the show. If you're not, check your spam folder. If you're still not, get in touch with me. Let me know you didn't get it. Thank you so much for all the emails. You can send me an email. Send osheremail at gmail.com. Thanks for all the podsy, P-O-D-S-I-E. Just tag that, hashtag that in whatever place you tag and hashtag things. Uh, it's basically a picture you've taken with your phone from wherever you're listening to this show right now. Some great ones this week, a couple of great post-workout podsies, some post-ride podsies. Someone wrote from a snow-covered Arizona, which was fantastic. Just take a photo of what you're looking at as you listen to this right now and either tag me on Instagram or Twitter or send it to me, send Osher email at gmail.com. To check in with you this week, some of you may have heard that I snapped. I snapped on air this week. Um, that's the moment you heard about it. I actually snapped twice this week, but one was off air. But I have found that I'm, I'm quite irritable lately, super irritable, and it is impacting those around me, which sucks, um, and it's not okay that I've let it get to that point. Um, so I took action. I took action. So it was not to feel powerless over the situation, and I did what I know I should always do. So I started by calling my mentor. I hit a meeting. I went to go see my psychiatrist. I put a whole bunch of things in play 
to minimise my chances of, of lashing out again. I'm a, I'm a passionate man. I'm a passionate person. Sometimes my passion for what I believe in does come across as arrogance, which just all that does is switch people off immediately and puts them into a mode where they're not going to hear a thing that I'm going to say. It completely defeats the purpose of me speaking up in the first place. And I, I wish I didn't do that. I'm trying to find ways that I don't do that. Um, but that is what happened this week. I'm passionate about equality. I try to have expectations about language that reflects equality and lack of equality. Um, however, I suck at communicating that. And it, sometimes it comes out as anger. It comes out as arrogance. So if you heard it, I'm sorry if I turned you off. I have to take responsibility for the way I spoke. I am taking responsibility for my actions and I'm working on mitigating those triggers in the future. The, the great thing, the really great thing about uh, me and Maddie, and Maddie is the person that I snapped at, uh, we sorted it out there and then. We then, we worked through it pretty much in the course of one song and one commercial break. And by the time we were talking again, which is about five and a half minutes later, everything was okay again. And I'm really grateful we were able to do that. Particularly in the high, high tension, high personality, large personality world of breakfast radio. I've heard stories of radio teams that don't speak to each other when the mics aren't open. And they only communicate manager to manager. They don't speak person to person. I can't imagine what it's like to work like that. But thankfully, I'm really grateful for Maddie for being so cool about it and being able to talk about it through with me straight away. But you have to get this sort of stuff out in a relationship. You can't, you can't let it fester. And I'm really grateful that he and I dealt with it the way we did. And uh, looking forward to the next show. Honestly, I'm really, really lucky. Um, in other news around the world this week, you would have seen it. I saw it. There was yet another atrocious incident in Syria this week. Uh, and then the U.S. responded by sending about $100 million worth of cruise missiles out to take out an airfield. Um, horrible news all around, horrible news from every side. However, in this current climate, we have to be careful about where we get our news from, which is why I'm grateful. I'm so grateful about who is with me on the show today. My guest today is Michael Ware. He is a legendary international war correspondent originally from Brisbane, Australia. And uh, through his career, Michael's style has pretty much always been a first-person front-row seat to some of the most confronting and dangerous situations on this planet, from modern-day witch hunting in Papua New Guinea to profiles of deadly Mexican drug cartels to going into Afghanistan only a few weeks after 9-11 and being one of the few Western journalists to live full-time in Iraq during the war. Michael was bureau chief for Time magazine in Baghdad before switching over to television for CNN, also based in Baghdad. Needless to say, Michael has seen pretty much the worst that the world can dish up. And during this conversation, Michael openly gives first-hand accounts of some of the things he's witnessed during war. This week, you may have seen the aforementioned cruise missiles being launched from a US destroyer hundreds of kilometres away from their targets in Syria. This is not the kind of war that Michael saw. Michael was right there, right up close. He talks about the fog of war, the horror of war, the gore, the death that he has seen. Not to sensationalise it, but to describe it so that you and I may know what it is we're asking for when our leaders decide to send troops into a country in our name. So here's the warning right up top. This discussion goes to some very dark places 
and describes some very confronting things. If you have any difficulty hearing what Michael and I talk about, particularly when it comes to the effects that this had on Michael, please do call in Australia, call Lifeline. Uh, the number is 13 11 14 or whatever 24-hour counselling service there is in your part of the world. It's a tough story to hear, but it is an important story to hear because if you're listening to this right now, you won the genetic lottery. Whatever stars and planets aligned, I don't know, but you're listening to this on some sort of internet-connected device somewhere in the world, and you're safe. That's not how the majority of the world live. Michael struggled with his demons, are well-documented. And when I first met him on a rooftop in New York City back in 2012, he was quite open about his PTSD. It's pretty obvious from his body language that I don't press him on what caused it. But I'm grateful. Five years later, we were able to talk and he was able to give some insight into how he became the man he became. Michael and I met in a beautiful old hotel in Sydney, right in the middle of the city, beautiful veneered wooden walls, absolutely glorious, beautiful place. And he was in town to talk about his new documentary series, which is currently on National Geographic. It's called Uncensored. And in this series, Michael embeds himself into some of the most risky groups of people on the planet, from pro-military Russian biker gangs to hill tribes in PNG, the much-hated paparazzi of Los Angeles. Michael brings a first-hand account of what he sees. Uh, you can see it at the moment on Wednesday nights on National Geographic in Australia. It's bloody incredible. Do what you need to see it. Uh, it's incredibly well-written. And it's a team effort with his wife, and uh, that kind of does make it better. He does. We do talk about the first episode where he embeds with a, a group of Russian bikers, but don't worry, we won't spoil anything for you. This is a heavy chat, but it is important for you to hear. I had a coffee beforehand. Like Michael, you may prefer to have a drink beforehand, <laughs> but it's certainly something that's very interesting to listen to. And I'm really grateful that it happened, and I'm grateful to everybody that helped make this interview happen. Uh, so do hold on, because this is me having a conversation with one of Australia's finest. This is Michael Ware. I'm rolling. We met... Oh, are we? Yeah. Oh, jolly good. We met uh, March 2012 Jeez, on James Swanick's roof. Oh, my God, it was too! Oh my goodness! I've forgotten all about that. Yes, we were on we were on a rooftop having sunset That's drinks. That's right, I remember. And you were the Aussie. You were visiting, or yeah, you were? Yeah, I was yeah. in town for like just a weekend. And That's right, and you were hosting a show back then. Yeah, um, I just actually I was unemployed at that point in time. Well, I yeah. just finished. Uh, I just finished uh, Idol, Australian Idol, and I just finished the radio job. Oh my god! And I was god. in New York. I'd been divorced for. Oh, Three months. Well, that hurts like a bitch. And I was growing my divorce oh, beard. Yeah. And oh. um, I was at the point in time where I was just saying yes to a lot That's of things. Because I'm going, I know this face. I know this face. <laughs> well, I, I ran a half marathon the next day. Cause yeah, someone... well, I remember he said to you, do you want to have a go? And you went, yeah, all right. I thought, what a pair of wankers, <laughs> right? One has been training for it. The other one is so fit he's going to do it. I hate them both. <laughs> um, and I had a weird experience making the show. Because they say that we're doing a paparazzi uh, episode, right? So I'm, you know, I'm embedding with different paparazzis or paparazzo and, um, and some stalk this way and some do this way and some do event photography. Yeah. And I go to meet the editor-in-chief of the National Enquirer 
And I walk in and it's Dylan Howard, Swano's old business partner. <laughs> and mate, there's an Aussie running National Enquirer. <laughs> it's frightening. But I remember, I remember when I met you, Michael introduced you to, of course, I knew your face mm. and I didn't want to punish you uh, too much on the day. But I remember on the day you were, you were a bit rattled. You were fairly open yeah. about why you were rattled. Yeah, yeah. You're like, I don't know, I'm, I'm taking, a, taking a couple of months yeah, off. Yeah, I'm yeah, a bit yeah. PTSD'd out. Oh, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't want to talk about it because I've, I've been diagnosed with it twice. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Um, but I didn't, I didn't want to push you on it. But I could see oh. that, you know, we were there and enjoying it. Mm. Was it Lower East Side sunset? Yeah, it was something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was way downtown on this lovely little rooftop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he somehow scammed his way into a rent control apartment. Oh my god! Hustler, hundred oh percent hustler. Seriously, James and he's still out there doing something, right? I don't know. He's always just one yeah. of these guys. He's got import export into Bogota or something like no. that. No. Because, you know, he fell in love with Miss Columbia and she broke his heart. And we shouldn't air this bit. <laughs> no, I will Poor Swano. Poor Swano. I'll cut it out. Um, but, I, look, I remember you and I, I, I vaguely recall, like, what, what part of Australia did you grow up in? In Brisbane. I'm a Brisbane boy, born That's... and bred. Um, Me too. Really? Yeah. Where are you from? Well, well, a lot of different places. But when my parents eventually came to Australia, we ended up in, in Brisbane. Yeah, but whereabouts? Yeah. Uh, well, we were in Chapel Hill at the time, which was really? an outer suburb. Yeah. It's not now. Yeah, no, the leafy western suburbs. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, the Kenmore Tavern. I distinctly remember where the, uh, where the Kenmore Tavern is now. I would drive to school in the morning and there were cows grazing there. You're kidding me. No, I shit you not. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What yeah. about you? What part yeah, of I, I grew up in Capera out near Fernie Grove. Oh, yeah. So for me, it was the Fernie Grove Tavern. We were at the end of the train line. Yeah, I remember. When we yeah. first, our, our uh, my aunt and uncle lived in Fernie Grove when we first moved there. We lived under their house for about a month. There you go. Well, that's where I was. It was Fernie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Brisbane's very much, call it what it is, the Red Cliff, Fernie Grove, Red Hill, you know, mm -hmm. name it, name, yeah. it, name it what it is. What was, what was Brisbane like, do you remember, growing oh, up? I actually, I actually didn't mind Brisbane. Obviously, I had no frame of reference. Um, but Capera was pretty rough and tumble back in, in those days. Um, when, when my folks bought the place there, they were like the first or second house on the estate. We were the very, very outer fringe of the city at that point. Um, and yeah, she was rough as guts at times. I mean, there was a lot of public housing, yeah, commission houses, uh, a lot of army houses, and then there was, you know, um, um, a few other families like us. I loved the place. I mean, we got into terrible trouble. We did dreadful things that made me blanch to think that if my kids did them now, I would just die. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was kind of like a. It was novelistic. It was uh, growing up. It was yeah. like Huck Finn and all these adventures and um, dogs and bikes and yeah. you know swimming holes. It was fantastic. There were swimming holes out there too. There that's was the, the old quarry, the, the Capera yeah. quarry, um, all that sort of stuff. So um, I um, your 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 backpack has just arrived. Yeah, there you go. My lost baggage. My whole life is in that black bag. In one bag. Surely, yeah. after all these years, you've learned to to. Spread things around baggage no, no, in case no, well, one gets lost. That's carry-on. That's carry-on. Oh, okay. Uh, and that bag, I actually purchased it at a forward combat base in Afghanistan. And then it, um, it was in the Battle of Fallujah with me. Holy shit. Mm, actually, Thank fun, you. funny story. Okay, in the Battle of Fallujah, for you know, many listeners are too young to know, um, it was in November 2004 one of the seminal battles of the Iraq war. Anyway, so I come out of the battle, I dust off in Baghdad, 
And then I'm on my way home to Brisbane for Christmas to see the folks and I have to pass through New York to see head office for Time magazine, who I then worked for. And I have this distinct memory. I'm, you know, I don't remember much about that week in New York. I had too much of a good time. But coming out, I'm at JFK and they do the bag scan and they wipe it with something. Suddenly all these bells start ringing and before I know it, there's all these National Guardsmen pointing their uh, M4s at my head. It's because that had been in the back of a Bradley armoured fighting vehicle. It's covered in ammunition dust and all this. So it just went off with all these explosives. (laughs) So I had to instantly on the spot prove, here's my business cards, here's the magazine, here's this. And then once they realised, okay, this guy, you know, is what he says he is, they're going, so what was it like? Was it cool? Like how bad was it? What was it? But, yeah, so that bag's been to hell and back with me, that one. And you got it at a Ford operating base. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, what do you I, need? Do you need some sugar? She's bringing sugar. Do you need yeah, sugar? No, no, I'm fine. You can come in and sit if you, you want or you don't. It's up it. to you. So Depends if you want to subject yourself to it. This is our fabulous Sally who takes care of me. Oh, Sally's magnificent. Sally uh, helped me uh, meet a young snowboarder by the name of Travis Rice. Oh, there you go. Fascinating human being. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, she herds cats, so... <laughs> uh, when, now, I remember, obviously, as a kid growing up, um, you're not too much older than me. I thought to think so, although you look damn sight better than me, you bastard. But Well, it's because I stopped drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I cheated, and I also cheated in that I did the overnight shift in radio, so I stayed out of the Queensland right. sun for about yeah, seven, yeah, yeah. seven years where most people were getting baked. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, did you first, when did you first get attracted to the idea of wanting to tell stories? Uh, I guess I always liked telling stories. I remember, you know, primary school and grade seven, always wanting to you know, write the best essay and being the kid chosen to read out his, you know, little essay. And that continued through high school. You know, English was my absolute favourite subject. Um, and then, and every now, you know, I went to poetry camp and I did a bit of drama and this and that. But my focus was getting into law school. That said, once I got into university, I started scratching out the odd story for the university newspaper at the University of Queensland. And I enjoyed it and I really applied myself to it. Um, I continued to write bad poetry and short stories, but I never really had it as a focus for a way to make a living and have a career. So I finished my law degree and then took a job for a year as an associate Um, to the president of the Court of Appeal in Queensland, Tony Fitzgerald of the Fitzgerald Inquiry. And I... When it was all going down? No, that was after the the inquiry, he was made president of the Court of Appeal. Uh So I got... It's a one-month gig that you get as an associate to help him with research and this sort of thing. Wow. So just to a bit of background, uh, the Queensland cops at the time and the Queensland government were just knee-deep, neck-deep in in corruption. Well, the way I explain it to my American friends... (laughs) Because I grew up, I grew up in the middle of all this. Right. So, like, you know, my yeah. father was a trade union leader under Bajocchi Peterson. Holy so moly. I remember all of it. Um, as I tell my friends in the States when I say, where do you come from? And when I tell them Brisbane, you know, most haven't heard of it. But I say, think of it this way. In the United States, you have the deep south, mm-hmm. right? I said, in Australia, we have the deep north. <laughs> yes. And that's where I come from. Pretty much. And... If you think back to things like, you know, um, some old Paul Newman movies and whatever, you know, the southern governor, overweight, sweating in a white suit, who's as corrupt as anything, and the local sheriff is on the take, well, that was Queensland for 20 or 30 years. Yeah. 
um, and it wasn't until the mid-80s um, that events transpired where, uh, as a result of a lot of the work done by the Courier Mail and by Four Corners on the ABC, some, you know, some irrefutable proof of corruption came to light. So a short six-week inquiry was called for. This anonymous, unknown federal court judge called Tony Fitzgerald was put in charge of this six-week inquiry, and it went for three years. Yeah. And the commissioner of police went to jail, half the cabinet went to jail, the premier was put on trial and was found not guilty, but it then it turns out that the... the, <laughs> the um, the head of the jury was from his political party and had rigged the jury room. Um, so that was the that was the kind of place we yeah. all grew we up in. We went to school with his his son, who was a few years below us, and there would be these guys that would drop him to school every morning and wait. Oh, you all a terrorist day. boy? Yeah. yeah, I know. I know Eddie very very well. That um, would wait all day for this boy. Lovely bloke. Yep, yeah, yep. Like it was that serious that a, a kid in the middle of Brisbane had to be escorted. to Well. School. Um, his el- one of his elder sisters had to take a female police officer to schoolies week. Um, so, look, that family contributed enormously to the political and moral health and the political health of our state of Queensland. And you know, I'm sure they paid a terrible price for it. Yeah, um, but look, you got to work for him. I got to work for him, and that was an enormous privilege. But on the first Friday of my first week of that year, I was with him. I remember distinctly banging my head on the desk, going, "This is a big mistake. This is a big mistake. I'm not cut out for this." Fortunately, towards the end of that year, I got a phone call from the Courier Mail that said, "Have you ever thought about being a journalist?" Went in for a meeting. We discussed it and said, "Let's give it a go for a year." And 25 years later, right? I'm still a hack. <laughs> I wouldn't call yourself that, but you're most definitely someone who, uh, you know, I mean, the obvious parallel would be, for me, uh, as being a fan of his work as well, would be someone along the lines of Hunter S. Thompson who would go, well, right, I know you're going to say no, but as far as you're going, you know what, I just want to go where it's the most, uh, how close can I get to it? Well, well, God bless Hunter. He, he never really did the war zone, but... Hunter S. Thompson eventually became part of a movement that we now call new journalism or literary journalism. And within that, he created his own distinctive style called gonzo journalism. And it's funny that you intone Hunter's name because in the making of this show that we just did for Nat Geo, National Geographic, these eight episodes, essentially eight separate documentaries, we purposely did it with Hunter in mind. In fact, our pitch was essentially, imagine if Hunter S. Thompson had a camera instead of a notebook. And that's why, that's the way that we approach this show, trying to bring literary journalism to television for the first time. No one's tried that. And to let you see the madness and the mayhem that I particularly invoke on the path to finding a story. So Hunter is a bit of an idol of mine. My other great idol is a very, 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 you know, globally famous cameraman who is not as recognised as well as he should be here in Australia called Neil Davis. He was an Aussie war cameraman who covered the, the Vietnam War and Indochina for 10 or 15 years and then was killed in a pissant little coup in Bangkok in the mid-'80s that lasted just a few hours. The man survived over a decade of full-blown warfare and died in a two, three-hour coup. Um, But they're the kind of people who are my inspirations. Once I switched to journalism, you know, it was very much in my mind that if I'm going to do journalism, I'd like to 
do foreign work like Neil Davis, but I've always had the essence I'd like to think of Hunter S. Thompson. Mate, there's a couple of photos of you with a, you know, a week of beard, Spyrax notebook in one hand, you're in the khaki, you got a, you know, you got a half a smoked durry in the other yeah, hand, yeah. got a pair of aviators on, there's some building half destroyed behind you. Yeah, there's a bit of that. There's a <laughs> bit of that. Um, well, and that's the thing because, you know, in some ways, you know, my generation of journalists, we got screwed, right? Uh, in, terms of, in terms of war correspondence, right? Because there's one generation, they had Vietnam, they had Cambodia, beaches, bars, uh, music. Access. Right? Then you have another generation that has Central America, El Salvador and Guatemala and Nicaragua, and there there's women and music, and then my generation gets the Muslim desert. <laughs> so we got totally screwed. <laughs> um, so... I think half of my energy was spent on trying to find a life. Like, I mean, there was periods in Baghdad. I mean, in the first blush, you know, when we first arrived in, as the front lines collapsed and, you know, the regime fell in 2003 and we arrived in Baghdad, there's... Because under Saddam, you know, it wasn't an Islamic country. It was very secular. There was nightclubs and, you know... Women were going to universities and, you know, there was a Christian in his cabinet, one of his chief spokesmen. I mean, it was a fairly secular place. One of the unfortunate circumstances of our, you know, meaning Western invasion, is that by removing Saddam's secular regime, we opened the ground for the Islamists to take over and they still run the country. Now, when we first arrived, there was liquor stores, right? Proper shop fronts glass-fronted liquor stores with wine and booze and all this sort of thing. In fact, in one of them, one day, I, at way at the back of the, at the store, I found a lonely green box that I instantly recognised as a case of VB. <laughs> and I swear to God, it was the only case of VB in all of Iraq. <laughs> so I bought it, of course, yeah. and I went and delivered it to the US Embassy. Because um, there was a company of US uh, Aussie soldiers who had to guard it. So oh, I my just, God. I just walked over to the to the sentry and said, take this as a gift on behalf of Time magazine. Um, but so these liquor stores were mostly run by Christians. And as that first year progressed, one by one, they started getting whacked. And, in fact, my very favourite liquor store and liquor store owner um, had a rocket propelled grenade put in through the front of his shop. So it wasn't long by 04, definitely by 05, scoring, you know, a bottle of Johnny Walker or let alone a case of decent beer or any, it was, it was like scoring smack or heroin. You had to ring a bloke, he had to tell you what he had, you'd then arrange to meet in some back street, your two cars would reverse up, he'd open his boot, unload, you'd put him in your boot and you'd drive off. Wow. Um, so alcohol became a scarce and precious commodity, trust me. And, and certainly one that you, there's a few things in there that I'd love to unpack if it's all right. Uh, mm. When you mentioned going into a war zone and being there, uh, it's one thing to go there for a little amount of time, but actually set up shop, like where do you want a hotel? Do you have an apartment? Like I remember my mum telling me my mum escaped um, Lithuania when the Russians came. Really? Yeah. 
And, really? And she then travelled. They went down through Poland and then across. So they were there when the Germans arrived. They went with the retreating German army because right. they were safer to go with than yeah. the Russians. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Look, There's a let's complexity. face it, all the Lithuanians are dodgy. Let's face <laughs> it. One of my dearest, dearest friends is a Lithuanian, John Martinkus. But, but let's – oh, yeah, very good Lithuanian name. Yeah. But, uh, to be fair, my grandmother actually – um, the, part of the reason that they were uh, so worried is my grandmother had been saving Jewish girls from the city right. and, you know, sending them out through the Underground right, Railroad right. so they had to get out. But they, re- they retreated with – they went back with the uh, returning German army. That's what John's parents did. Our father did too, right. yeah. Because, yeah, they were safer than the Russians. Yeah. Anyway, mum says – Because you'd only just been liberated from Russian yeah. control yeah. by a few years and yeah. suddenly they're back. They're back. Hey, it was tanks. Right. Um, but she said that – because I remember, like, we, we talked earlier about, you know, being a bit PTSD'd out and uh, I'm a lot healthier now, but when I wasn't, mum mm. would sit me down and say, listen, you just got to remember that even when there was fucking, uh, you know, British planes strafing these mm-hmm. r- these kind of walking people down this lonely country road. Rivers of refugees. Yeah, because they thought they were yeah, Germans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, like she said, people were still making dinner. The family life was still going on. Oh, People were course. still having arguments. Yes, of course, but that doesn't mean that the trauma hasn't broken them inside. Oh, oh, this is true. But I guess what I'm what I'm asking is like, when you're there for that amount of time. Do people just try and stay, like, cling to little bits of normalisation, like you clinging to the VB or you... Oh, yeah, of course, you know. Because <laughs> we get this idea that I mean, war just kind of is this ever, never-ending thing and far away land, far away land, and there's lots of crumbling buildings and people shouting Allah Akbar, and then we watch Family Feud. Well, that's it. And, and that is, let's face it, our Western experience of it. And, you know, in many ways, thank goodness. Look, <clears throat> much of my professional life has been devoted to an inherent contradiction because my job was to go to these places that either no one cared about or that no one really wanted to know about and to see these horrors and to share this sort of suffering and to then scream about it, to point and scream to the world to look and... And to pierce this bubble of privilege. Because let's face it, in many ways we don't live like humankind. We won the genetic lottery. We are the very, very privileged few uh, in the West. Because let's face it, the, the, the vast majority of the world still lives in a slum or on a dirt farm or, you know, they're still eking out, you know, a life. We have no, we forget or we have no way of knowing just how privileged we are. So we live in this bubble. But they're right out of Brian Coles. There you go. See, Michael. Our Uber didn't show up. He's gone the wrong way. Fuck, my Uber's three minutes late. So we, we're a bubble of privilege that bobs <laughs> along on the sea of humanity. Now, part of my job was to pierce that bubble and to remind us all and to show us all that, you know, there's other things going on and maybe there's something we can do, maybe there isn't, but we should know. At the same time, I wanted to preserve that bubble because this is where my family is. This is where my kids are. I mean, I want them to be encased in that safety and that privilege. So that was a a great contradiction for me throughout the whole experience. So when you are in those in those war zones for, for that amount of time, mm. does it ever get normal? Like you oh, mentioned yeah, you got your no, favourite no, liquor no. store. Oh, I mean, look, I did all up, you know, maybe two years in Afghanistan and about seven in Iraq. And most journalists, I mean, soldiers, if you're a Marine, US Marine, you did about seven months tour. 
If you're a US Army, you did a 12-month tour. Um, overall, in the war on terror, there's about 3 million individual Americans who've served at least one tour in Afghanistan or Iraq. There's about, last time I checked, about 105,000 uh, individuals who've done three tours. Um, as an American soldier once told the Australian ABC, I did the equivalent of eight or nine tours. And I wasn't doing six weeks in and two weeks out or I wasn't doing three months and then three months out. I was in Iraq for 10, 11 months a year. I just never, ever left. Now, that brought certain advantages. I knew the story and the place and the people in a way that I suspect you know, virtually no one else could have. Uh, but obviously that takes a toll. It's funny what you get used to because it got to a point where that was home. I was far more comfortable in war and combat than I was here. I would freak out when I came back home to Australia or when I went to the, to the US. Uh, and this is a common thing that soldiers have too. You know, that, that initial blush when you come home, it's so difficult to, to fit back in. Especially if you've been there long enough, you're just so much more comfortable over there than you could ever hope to be here. So I've often said it, for, for service personnel, for journalists like me, the homecoming can sometimes be more difficult and more fatal than the war itself. You really have to fight to come home. Now, you know, I went a little bit excessively and I didn't know how to leave, so I stayed, you know, in the wars on terror, you know, full time, like for nine years. So coming home, I really had to work to come home. My body had arrived, but the rest of me was still over there. When you mean work to come home, what, do you, what does it look like? Well, it was pretty ugly. I had on this show, I've had um, uh, a fantastic guy by the name of Brandon Webb. He's a SEAL sniper yep. that trained Chris Kyle. He started, yep. you know, he was yep. the guy that rewrote the sniper school stuff. Yeah, yeah. I have a particular affinity for snipers. They're freaks. I love them. He, ha he talks about becoming accustomed to this level of alertness. Hyper-vigilance. does not exist in the real no, world. No, and when it's gone, you don't know what to yeah, do. Yeah, no, it's hyper -vigilance. Did you experience that? Of course. And you have it walking down the street. I mean... I, it's been oh, six, seven years now for me, but I still get flashes of it. But particularly when I was first at home, I mean, you've got to be very careful tapping me on the shoulder or, or waking me up, for example. Um, this is a very common veteran's thing. Uh, if I'm asleep, don't just come and rub me on the shoulder and say, get up, get up, because once upon a time, I would just lash out and grab you and pin you down by the throat and, oops, sorry. Um, these days, it's more just thrashing, but... Now, the best way to wake me up is by shaking my foot. Um, and often what I find myself doing now is, is when I wake up, I put my hands up above my face, uh, ready for an, a brace for an attack, and it takes me a few seconds to realise it's the missus. Um, in fact, I was asleep one night in Brooklyn and I wake up in the morning and I could hear someone in the building screaming like they were being gutted as a fish. And I realised it was me. And I looked and my left arm was down about five inches and completely rotated around the wrong way. My dream, whatever it was, was so violent, I completely tore my shoulder out of its socket and had to have a complete reconstruction. 
from a dream. You dislocated your own shoulder in your dream. Tore it out. Didn't dislocate. Tore it out. And they had to do a complete reco um, from a dream. Um, now, for the first few years, that sleep was a big thing. First, I couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep for 10 years. And you don't sleep much in war, let's face it. Um, you really, really don't. Um, so reclaiming sleep took me years. And then once I did reclaim it, it, it haunted me. Um, so it took a long time to, to work through that. Look, this is every old soldier's story. Mm. It's not unique to me. But they have, they have veterans affairs. They have people that call them in and say, hey, you've yes. got to come in and have a debrief. Yeah. What did you have? Yes, yes, they do. But, you know, look, there's flaws in that system. Look, we, we have moved a long way in terms of veterans affairs mm-hmm. and dealing with trauma. Give them an RSL, sit them on the hill. Right, Give them a know, bulge club. They'll right, just drink it right. off. Well, you know, after World War II, when we had no idea, we didn't have a word for PTSD except perhaps shell shock or mm. whatever it was. That entire generation, it was the wives who brought them home. They're the ones who had to put up with the alcoholism and the domestic violence. And they're the ones who had to try and reintegrate them into society. After Vietnam, you know, there was a different kind of pain because society rejected the soldiers as opposed to the war. Um, And the area of trauma research was really underdone. So our original sort of data and learning about trauma came from female rape rape victims. And from there they began to apply that knowledge to these Vietnam vets who seemed to be exhibiting some of the similar symptoms. And it's only now post-Iraq that we've really taken leaps forward. Now, we've got a lot... We now know probably more about what we don't know about trauma, but we have gone a long, long way. And people still fall through the cracks. Mm. So we are doing much, much better. But at the end of the day, it's up to you, the digger, or the veteran, or the, you've got to do a lot of hard work. I, I met one army psychiatrist who did Vietnam, and he said to me, it's really, really sad because a whole group of my friends, uh, we served in Vietnam, they came home, they returned to their civilian lives, and it's upon retirement, where they have their first chance to sit still, that they blew their brains out. So you've got to dig in early, I believe, and try and get some of this stuff processed or, you, you know, you have very little hope of moving forward. Did you ever see, were you faced with a day where you're like, this is going to be painful to dig into this? I'm well, going to avoid well, it, I'm going to avoid it, and then one day you're like, shit, I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to work on it? Well, you know, I was cognizant of the fact that, you know, trauma affects everybody. In fact... A Vietnam veteran in the US military won the Medal of Honor, I believe. I once heard him say, because someone said to him, oh, what percentage of soldiers are affected by trauma? Officially, the figure is about 30% will come back with PTSD. What this Medal of Honor winner said was, you would have to be a sociopath not to be affected by the things that we see and the things we have to do. Now, that doesn't mean it has to cripple you and it doesn't mean that, you know, but one in five homeless people are vets in the United States, things like this. Because trauma is something that you can't cure. It's about learning how to manage it. Once you see something, you can never unsee it. It's been with us since time began. Shakespeare's Henry IV Part Two references PTSD. Of course, it doesn't have that name, but there's a wife in a soliloquy 
uh, talking about her husband who's returned from the wars of France, and she runs through most of the primary conditions of PTSD. Um, so it's some, it's, this is every old soldier's story. Mm. Um, and, of course, you know, it's only those who've been there that you can really, really ever talk to about it. And, yeah. But for me, the bottom line was that it's incumbent upon us to try and find that way home. So for people... And we'll never be the same. Yeah. For people that... For people that it's just an acronym to them. Mm-hmm. What what can you tell people? I mean, you've just described a little bit about waking up with mm. your fists up, which mm-hmm. must be very difficult for the intimate partner in your life. Mm. What can you tell someone about what it's like to go through life with a PTSD? Well, you know, there's many forms and it's got many degrees, but it just takes an understanding. Like my partner, you know, she totally gets it. Um, there's some things that are unforgivable and you need to be smacked around for certain behaviours. And there's other behaviours where you just need to be given a little bit of space. And if you're smart enough and you've worked hard enough, you know how to find your way back, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's eventually or quickly or whatever. I mean, I'm a different person now to when I first came home. Um, but, you know, there's stuff that will linger with me forever. I mean, look, I consider it a privilege, but... I walk with ghosts everywhere around me all the time and they will never leave me. And you know what? I wouldn't want them to. Some of them are friends. Um, Some of them are people I met only in death. You know, I remember this one day, there was a part of Baghdad called Sada City. It's essentially run by the Iranians. And things had gotten so bad, the Americans sealed it off with a vast concrete wall and they were just pummeling it with rockets and uh, all sorts of stuff was going on. And, of course, I was stupid enough to be the only Western journalist who snuck in and ran around in there. And we've been hearing about these this enormous toll of civilian casualties, which just happens in war. There's collateral damage. That's just a fact of life. So I went to the... I asked the, the militia commander to take me to the hospital. So long we go. Of course, there's a missile strike. The ER starts flooding with blood and trolleys and gurneys. And then I said, can I see the morgue? So I go to the morgue. And it's a great big, vast, you know, fairly modern morgue with, you know, stainless steel trays and refrigeration and da-da-da. They were stacked like cordwood to the ceiling. And the guy who ran the morgue, the medical examiner or whatever you want to call him, said, you know, without a common language, just tugged at my sleeve and said, come with me. And we go outside and there's a great big refrigerated shipping container. And he opened the door and it stacked floor to ceiling as deep as the container goes. And then he shut that door and then he tugged me again and pulled me over to the next shipping container, which wasn't refrigerated. And he'd only just opened that one up and there was only three bodies in there. One was a young 20-something woman who I guess would have been about eight months pregnant. And the other one was a kid who was about 12 years old who had a perfect sniper shot right between the eyebrows. Um, I only met the pregnant woman and the kid in death, but right this second as I'm sitting here looking at you, I can see them laying in the corner. And I wouldn't have it any other way because you know what? I'm the custodian of their story. And it's an honour. And, I don't know, there's a dark comfort in knowing that, you know, I can 
do something for them even now. I don't know. No, no. Is that is that the thing that keeps you or kept you in that space, in that dangerous space for so many years? Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, as I said earlier, one is it became my normal mm. and I was much more comfortable there than I was here. One of the other things was I had an Iraqi family. I mean, I had a vast team of Iraqis who worked with me. Now, at least three of them were kidnapped and tortured because of me. Excuse me, and I got them all back. Two were kidnapped by the Islamic, what we now call the Islamic State, and it took vast negotiation and I got them back. One of them, one was for two and a half months. The other one was for only for eight days. For the first five days, they, they lured him to a meeting and rolled him up, take him to a remote farmhouse, and they tortured him in ways I can't begin to tell you for five days. Under interrogation, as I said to him later, what were they asking you? And they go, well, it's all about you. Mick is CIA. Mick is CIA. And he's saying, no, he's not. No, he's not. So they tortured him. And during the torture, he mentioned the name. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So four or five, you know, insurgent rebel commanders that I deal with, you know, of different groups and different parts and different places. Then for three days, they left him chained up naked to a water pipe in this farmhouse and after three days they come back, unchain him, wrap a blanket around him and say, well, brother, um, I'm sure you must understand why we have to do these things um, but we're going to let you go. These Islamic, what we now call Islamic State guys, had gone round the country and found all five commanders. And if any one of them had said, you know what, I've wondered about Mick, he would have been dead, then I would have been dead. So that's just one example of a multitude of things that my family went through. So one of the reasons why I couldn't leave Iraq was until I could start getting them out. And I'm very, very grateful. Uh, the UK took a few of my families. The US took a few of my families. And look, say what we will about Manus Island and Nauru and turn back the boats. And I have, you know, 
very conflicted feelings about all of that. But the thing I will say is that successive Australian administrations, including conservative you know, coalition governments, have taken a number of my families. One, they brought this year. Is it this year? Last year. Um, my, la my last family. So, you know, Australia, the Australian governments have been very, very kind um, to my families. So that was the one reason why I couldn't leave. The other reason I couldn't leave was because the story didn't feel like it was done, right? I could see the story unfolding of the war and there was a certain point that I felt, you know, it got to a point where finally I could see how it was going to play itself out and all right, I can leave now. Because when I first arrived in Baghdad, I was in the north in the war with the special forces and the Peshmerga and, you know, that's where I first saw, you know, the Islamists and that's where I first saw my first suicide bombing. Um, that was February 26, 2003. Then I saw my second suicide bombing, which I think was March 21 or 22, 2003. They killed an Aussie. Um, there was an ABC camera crew there and it killed the cameraman Paul Moran and injured the correspondent Eric Campbell. And I had to scoop up Paul's body and get him back home. The front line collapsed. I get to Baghdad. There's the American war machine holding press conferences, doing this, doing that. And they're talking about these people who were shooting at them. Little pot shots, little bombs. It still hadn't really turned into a fury yet. But there was definitely something going on out there. And you never really saw it. But you learned that there was, you know, American killed here and two killed there and you'd hear a bomb in the distance. And, and I'd listen to the Americans talk about these people and at first I thought they were just, it was propaganda and bluff. And then the more I got to know the American command, the more I realised they honestly and genuinely had absolutely no idea who was shooting at them. And they couldn't fathom why they'd be shooting at them. We got rid of Saddam, we're bringing them democracy. What the heck's the problem? Now, at that point, it's what I call the summer of love, 2003. There's pool parties, there's dinner party circuits, you know, the hotels are so full of journalists you can't get a room. Fast forward to the kidnappings and the bombings and you can fit us all on a council bus. But at that point, there's thousands of journalists from all over the world and no one was going out to ask these people, what are you doing? So it took me months, but I eventually found the insert, the early insurgency and asked them, who are you and why are you shooting at the Americans? Mm. Um, and then that took me on a journey through the rest of the war. Now, in 2003, these people offered me a peace deal. Here are the terms that we will stop shooting and killing Americans and here's how we would be prepared to enter the new political system. And the Americans ignored them. Four and a half years later... Two and a half thousand American combat deaths, quarter of a million civilian deaths. The Bush administration turned around, accepted the deal on its original terms and put 107,000 insurgents on the US government payroll and the insurgent war stopped, you know, metaphorically overnight. So I didn't feel that I could leave until a big part of that process yes. had been done. You mentioned before talking to some of these uh, insurgent leaders. Mm -hmm. The scariest people I think I've ever spoken to were, you know, maybe a guy I scored weed off in Prague one time and, you know, 
maybe, maybe you know, making making the wrong face at the wrong biker back when I was a right, right, you know, like right. maybe, yeah, but, yeah, you know, yeah. What's it? You know, you you've had experience with people who have both. I'm sure the least amount of humanity and the most amount of humanity well, that, that no one's... I'll never see the levels well, of humanity okay, you've spoken with. Here's the funny thing. All right. I'm pretty, I'm pretty pessimistic about the human condition, right? I'm very much into Thomas Hobbes, the old English philosopher. You know, life is meant to be cruel, brutish and short. Left to our own devices, we're going to war and rage against each other. Me and my mates are going to roam into your village and pillage and do whatever we want, Right. So we come together and form a social contract where we surrender certain civil liberties and freedoms in return for which we get law and order and governance and a contract will be honoured and this sort of thing. So in our hearts, there's light and dark in all of us. Now, trust me, I can take you to... Give me a month of your life and I'll take you to a place where you'll become someone that you never knew you could be. (laughs) You know? You know... It's attributed to Plato, but it's actually uh, from the earliest 20th century. There's a, a quote that um, only the dead have seen the end of war. Now, if that's true, and I, my heart, I know it is, that means war is as much a part of the human condition as is a mother's love for her child. It's in all of us, right? So the point being that I discovered even the Islamic state of people Right? They're psychotic. Um, They have a fanatical belief. I mean, I've been to Islamic State camps. I was grabbed by the Islamic State. I escaped my own beheading. I mean, the Islamic State has had several different name changes. It's had four or five different leaders, but it was founded by one man in 2003. Um, So I witnessed the birth of the Islamic State. So I've sat with these people. And there's something about being across the table from a man like that that it does. It sends a shudder through you. It's illuminating, but it sends a shudder through you. Put it this way. I had a a rocky insurgent friend, ex-military. He's a freedom fighter. He just wants the foreigners, the Americans to leave his land. He's not religious. He's happy to have nightclubs and women at school. And he doesn't, you know. But then these Islamic psychopaths show up and he has to deal with them. So I guess the one point where he contemplates joining forces with them and he tells me this and he goes and has a meeting. I see him a few weeks later. So I say, oh, mate, so how did that meeting go with, you know, what we call the Islamic State? And he just sort of went white. He goes, it's as if they're from another planet. He says... You don't know what they're thinking from one second to the next. I mean, this man was a warrior. He'd been fighting American tanks. And he said, and they terrified me. Wow. I don't know if that's a statement about the human condition or if it's a statement about the intensity of human commitment and fanaticism, you know? Um, Because, look, let's face it. We of the West and our military, we kill children. And you mentioned snipers. I told you I have a particular affinity with snipers. They're very, very peculiar individuals. Because a sniper and his spotter can get dropped off in a place and left alone and they lay still like a rock. 
for days until they get that one. Uh, the capital city of the Islamic State now is a city in Syria called Raqqa. The first capital they ever had when the Islamic State was first declared, it was called the Islamic State of Iraq, was a city called Ramadi. Now, in that city, it's about 300, 400,000 people. The Americans had no control. They had about a third of the forces they needed to even begin to control the city. So these American kids were fed into what their own commanders called the meat grinder. Oh, they were just churning out American bodies, right? While I was there, I was with a group of snipers in a sniper hide and we were talking about things. And there was a particular road where there could be 100 roadside bombs in a week, right? So to stop that, they had eyes on the whole road and anyone digging a hole and you just blew them away, right? That was a hostile act. There was a, a trick where a bomb had gone off in a road and it would leave a little crater by the side of the road. Okay, if you want to do it quick and dirty, you can just walk past that hole and drop another bomb and keep going. And they'd use children to do that. So this American sniper friend of mine remembers shooting an eight-year-old boy and blowing his head apart like a watermelon because he had a plastic bag with a bomb in it and dropped it in the hole and he had to whack him. So we kill children too. And that's not a statement about us. It's not a statement about the Islamic State. That's a statement about war and a statement about the human condition. Sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do. And... That's not the hard part. The hard part is living with it and knowing that's inside you. You mention you mentioned that it's You're inside. Right there. No, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm just surely you've seen surely you've seen the equal energy on the other side oh, in look, your journeys. Look, look. Surely you've seen I, humanity I, beyond. I will argue probably, you know, to defeat, I would argue that war is a love story because I've never seen greater love than I've seen in conflict, you know. I mean, it's unbelievable what, you know, men will do, for, you know, for another or what you'll do to protect some innocent family or there's wonder and beauty in the blood and the guts and the horror and it's humbling to watch. I mean, okay, put the civilian experience aside because that's a very intense and complex story. But let's just look at a soldier story. All right, you've been sent to war. Once you get there, here's, here's the facts. It doesn't fucking matter who sent you. And it doesn't matter why they sent you. Noble ideals, democracy, invasion, conquer, doesn't fucking matter. Your entire war is the 200 yards in front of you. And there's only one thing that matters. Making sure the bloke next to you gets home. And you will lay down your fucking life to make sure that, because you know what? You know he'll do the same. That's that, what war is. But that's the same on the other side of the 200 yards. Of course. Yards. Well, hello, that, you know, as, it, as, as you said before, you sat across the table from Islamic no, State no, no, guys no, no. and their people. I, I did more than that, you know. <laughs> Remember I said when I first got there and the Americans didn't know who was shooting at them, so yeah. I went and found the insurgency. For seven or eight years in Iraq, the insurgents were as good a friends of mine as the Americans. 
Some of my dear friends were insurgents. Now, look. Well, and the acts of love, you know, between the insurgents were just the same because the soldier is a soldier is a soldier. But let's not forget, there wasn't one war in Iraq. We all should be very aware of this. There was at least four or five. There wasn't one Iraq war. The first war was the American war against the nationalist insurgents. Former military guys, Duntroon, Puckapunyal, being in the army, who were fighting to get a foreign... If there was Indonesian or Chinese troops here in Australia, what would you be doing? Right. Right? That I'm was, going back out there, love. Get my gun. That was one war. Yeah. And in every neighbourhood, whether it's the Gap, whether it's North Bondi, whether it's Turak, there's a secret insurgent militia force and Every house knows who's the commander and knows who's in the, the team. And when the foreign troops come and invade your house and search and question you, are you going to give them up? Right. No. That was one war. That's the war we eventually ended. Then there was another war. We brought this upon ourselves. There was a war between the Americans and what we now call the Islamic State. The Islamic State did not exist until we invaded Iraq. We gave birth to them. Accidentally and inadvertently, we unleashed them upon the world and upon ourselves. That was the second war. The third war was the civil war between the Iraqis themselves, a religious war between their version of Catholic versus Protestant, Sunni and Shia. There was ethnic cleansing, there was torture prisons, there was extermination camps, there was unbelievable stuff. Then there was the sort of on-again, off-again, tiny little war between the Kurds in the north and the Arabs in the south. And then there was the other big war, the war with Iran. Iran won the war. Iran runs Iraq. Iran, now, because of what we did, not only did we create the Islamic State, we unleashed Iran. And now they're running half of Yemen. They're, you know, controlling big chunks of the war in Syria. They've taken over Iraq and they're expanding all their horizons. So there was all of these wars. Um, and I had friends in, in all of them. Mm. Um, there was absolute butchers on all sides. Let me just say this. I've seen good men do evil and I've seen evil men do good. So, again, we're capable of both. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Joseph Conrad talked about this in 1896. The heart of darkness, baby. So what you mentioned there is something that you see in the, in the new series that um, you're putting out with Nat Geo, um, particularly the, the, the moment where you go back and find the Iranian women that right. are fighting, but also when you go and find the, the, the Russian bikers. Oh, well, we love those boys. These are, and you say it time and time again, you go into these parts of the Ukraine and there's no front line. It's, no, that's my apartment. Right, right. And the soldiers were coming down that yeah, street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really reminded me of when I went back to Prague with my dad, and he goes, That's where I lived, and that's where the tank came. There you go. It's not this kind of idea that it's we have. It's not an abstract idea for these people. No, but, but we have this idea, I feel, that there is a front line well, somewhere, that somewhere in, the war starts and the war in ends. In some conflicts, there are, right? Okay, in Ukraine, yes. Right now, there's a designated front line. You know where the rebel republic stop and Ukraine proper begins again, right? Fine. But insurgency wars, be it Vietnam, be it Iraq, you don't know where the enemy is. 
I mean, I remember in 2003, I was working at Time magazine. We had a couple of chaps fly in from the States to do a particular story. It was the person of the year. You know, Time does mm -hmm. the man of the year. And that year, the person of the year was the US soldier, right? So they're there and they're embedding with different units to tell the story and put it on the front cover. They're in the back. This is the early days. It was so innocent and naive. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like a primary school fate. <laughs> um, we had Humvees. Not only did they not have armour, but they were like a ute or a pickup with wooden benches in the back, completely open. Right. Right. So they're in the back of one of these with a couple of soldiers and they're pushing through this very, on a city street, thronging with people, moving at snail's pace. And as they were, a dude just quietly walks past and goes click and drops a hand grenade in the back and keeps walking. Now, the rider, friend of mine, Michael Weiskopf, sitting on this wooden bench, all of a sudden next to him he hears clunk and there's a grenade with the pin out. So he goes to grab it, to throw it out, and of course it detonates and his hand is obliterated. The photographer's riddled with shrapnel all up his body. The soldiers, you know, get hurt. I mean, that's just the way of it. You saw that in, in and, the pattern repeating when you get oh, to Russia, yeah, well, well, when you get to Ukraine, I should okay, say, yeah, well, and, and there's again these ex-military. Well, just quickly back to, back, to back to Iraq, as the soldiers will tell you, the guy who hands you a piece of bread on a patrol during the day is the same guy who's going to shoot at you that night. Right. Now, so we've created this new series for National Geographic. We're very, very blessed. It's not often that, you know, some dodgy Aussie gets given the privilege by a global brand like Nat Geo to run around the world for eight episodes and, and to tell the stories that, that he wants to tell. But that's what happened to me. And, of course, oddly, it was my American wife who authored these stories. She ran the show, you know. I'm the performing monkey who went out there and did it. But... You know, like, what our, uh, one of the episodes that's already aired here in Australia was Putin's bikey game, right? Now, Vladimir Putin didn't create this bikey game, but he adopted them. Through this bikey game, they're called the Night Walls, you get a window in to the new Russia. Because, you know... Russia's in the news. Oh, did they, you know, subvert the US election? How many of Trump's advisors are tied to Russia? Once you get inside Russia and start to understand the new Russia, none of that is a surprise. Because in 1991, at the collapse of the Soviet Union, everything fell apart, right? The oligarchs and the organised criminals took over and it was mayhem for about a decade. Right? And Russia went through an identity crisis. Then a new president's elected. His name is Vladimir Putin. Ex-KGB, strong man. Deeply devout Christian. Orthodox, first guy. Had no idea, right? Because it turns out Russian Orthodox Christianity runs through the very DNA of Russia itself. Russia was created by an Orthodox clergyman. But Putin comes into power and says, no, we are Russia. We're big, we're powerful, and it's time for us to stop being kicked around. And all of Russia responded to that. 
And this bikey gang is nothing like, you know, we think of the Bandidos, the Comancheros, Hells Angels, the Rebels. Mate, it's fucking... These guys are nothing like that. Who came first, Fury Road or the Night Wolves? I swear <laughs> to God. Well... You know, because when you see that bikey compound, they're like, "Here is tank. We captured. We put. We mounted on our wall with dead soldiers in it." There you go, right? <laughs> like, it's fucking Fury Road. The the man who created this organisation is a man called the Surgeon. Yes, lovely name. He purposely modelled the clubhouse on George Miller's Mad Max. Ah! Openly states it, and it says Mad Max in steelworks on the top, right? Look, I've got to say, for a bloke that's so massive who looks like he could knife you any moment, you touched him a lot. Oh, yeah, I punched you're, him. I you're very him. hands-on oh, with him. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, stop yeah. touching him. Stop touching oh, him. Yeah, Someone's yeah. going to come out of nowhere yeah, and go Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> but through this bikey gang, even though they're an extreme version, because this is a gang or a club, sorry, let's not call them a gang, a club. They've got chapters all over. Moscow, St. Petersburg, and then in Slovakia, hmm. in Chechnya, in... All these places, and they want to reconstitute the Soviet Empire, right? So these are bikies who put on vast sort of monster truck style shows with, a, with fireworks and trick bikes doing stunts and, you know, music and smoke and all this sort of stuff. And it's all designed to entertain you while constantly giving you a message about the motherland and patriotism and we're going to stop taking shit from the West. And in the Ukraine, the chapter there, they're a paramilitary unit. They fight on the front line and that's where I meet them. So in the episode, the only legal one... Okay, let's, let's backtrack. Vladimir Putin is rebuilding the Russian Empire and I think everyone who's listening needs to be aware of this. Let's not pretend, let's not muck around. Russia is something very distant and abstract and we knew them when they were Soviets and Rambo was fighting them, but now we don't know them. Well, we should. Because, my God, they are coming back. No, make no mistake, they are back, right? Vladimir Putin is a personal hero of mine, right? I don't believe in anything he's doing, but, my God, if you're going to play power politics on the geopolitical stage, then no one can do it better than him. You know what Vladimir Putin's foreign policy is? Stop me. <laughs> I take Crimea. What you going to do about it? Finland, you're next. If you can stop me, take me. Right? <laughs> Took Crimea without a shot being fired. I was in Georgia when he invaded, right? South Ossetia. It still belongs to him, right? Yeah. He's virtually running three quarters of the war in Syria. He's just deployed a force in Libya, right? And all of this is happening and you can see that the, 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 there seems to be this mad sort of expansionism involved. But once you get to know the place, it all makes perfect sense. And I did that through this bike again. Yeah. I had – and legally, okay, this, the Night Wolves – are uh, uh, to the West an illegal warring organisation, right? They're on the US sanctions list. The leader is personally named, the headquarters is personally identified, the entire organisation, right? So I couldn't fly to Moscow and join them. Um, for legal reasons, I had to fly to Kiev, drive for 10 hours through Ukraine, cross the front line and then hook up with them in the breakaway states because what happened in the Ukraine is that at a certain point, 
the Ukrainians were moving towards the EU. The Ukrainians want to be part of Western Europe. They want good hospitals. They want this. They want that. They want to be part of this. The government was moving in that direction. Then all of a sudden, Putin steps in and stops that. And suddenly they, the, gov- the pro-Putin government reverts to Moscow. Well, the people rise up in protest. We have Maidan Square. 120 people are killed protesting. At the same time, in the east of the country where they're ethnic Russian, armed men suddenly start overrunning police stations. And they start declaring an independent state. So the new fledgling democratic government sends in the Ukrainian army and a war erupts to the point where now Ukraine is divided. You have most of Ukraine and you have these breakaway states that want to rejoin Russia. So I had to drive from Kiev to the front line with the breakaway states, managed to bullshit my way across the front line and get in there. Then I had to go and seek out and find these night wolves. I had five minutes to impress them enough to let me into their clubhouse and from there I got to join the organisation and eventually move to Moscow. They're an extreme form of this new Russian pride and patriotism, like an extreme form. But you know what? They're not obscure. They're not an abrogation. They are a very vocal statement of what most Russians are feeling. Like... They did a ride through Moscow that I went with them, right? There was thousands of bikes. and There was like, no missing them. You were driving right through the centre of town. They po- closed the main freeway down. Police are stopping yeah. the road. It's like yeah. driving through inner Sydney and back yeah. again. Policemen like, are taking selfies with these guys. And this guy is a national figure. The point being, that's Russia now. Yeah. So... Don't think we're just messing with Putin. Don't think that they're being erratic and painful. They are storming back in a way that right now we have no answer to. And I would argue right now they're winning the game, (laughs) which is like the Iranians. We are... um we're getting close to something. Oh, no. I know, I oh, know. Oh, I've hardly begun. We haven't talked about burning witches in Papua New Guinea alive at the stake. We'll get there. Okay. Well, we might not get there, but I just thought I would two, two, two final topics and then and then we'll, then we'll oh, wrap up. I was only afternoon. just winding up. I know, but I'm, I'm aware that you've got an evening of... of a I'm prime, always aware. Of, of prime, yes, the hypervigilance. Okay. Well, aware. Okay, so you... Uh, I want to talk a little about your good lady wife that you mentioned earlier. Oh, my God. I'll save that for the end. First now, though, at the very beginning of this, you mentioned the bubble that we live in. Yeah, the and privileged that want, bubble. The yeah, privileged yeah. bubble. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people listening to this. They're, li- they're listening within the bubble. They have access to a smartphone. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. 4G everywhere. Yeah, They've got yeah. hot and cold. And God bless, you know. Running water. How can people listening help preserve that bubble? Um by, you know, the way they perceive the world. The world is being shoved down their throats. Tracy Grimshaw is telling them that Muslim bus drivers are out to kill their whatever the fuck. I don't know what yeah, she does. Yeah, I don't believe that. She's trying to scare everyone every night. Um, how can we stay appreciative of this bubble? How can we protect this bubble? Look, I don't know. Look, it's like, I don't know. How can we stop ourselves going down a line of some of the countries and some of the states that you've seen end up as? Well, I don't see us becoming a failed state. I don't see us at risk of... Fisher, you know, we don't have that in our culture. We don't have those sort of tensions. And let's face it, we're a teeny weeny little country. We are vast in terms of geography, but we have the population of, you know, not much more than the five boroughs of New York. And we should be appreciative of that. It's less than LA. 
right? Yeah. We should be appreciative of that. We're very, very blessed. I just think we need to pinch ourselves every day and remember that, right? Um, the Muslims aren't out to get us. Um, the Chinese aren't about to invade. Um, you know, we just got to take a breath. But we, need, we need to constantly remember how lucky we are and we need to return the generosity of our birthright because we don't do that. We're quick to judge. We're quick to accuse. We're quick to be suspicious. We owe the world. I said we won the genetic lottery. Well, we should sprinkle it about a bit, you know? Um, to share some of the privilege around a bit. That's what I'm saying. And sharing it is enjoying it, you know? This sort of defensive mentality where we curl up into a little ball and go, oh, my God, there's a Muslim taxi driver, or oh, my God. Oh, my God, we're frittering it away. But, Michael, every day... We have an obligation to appreciate this because, you know what, billions of people don't even have... Like, they look at us as a dream and we need to live the dream and sometimes I think we, we prevent ourselves from doing that because of our own ridiculous fears that are not legitimate. But every morning, I, you know, my algorithmic Facebook feed sees what I'm clicking on and feeds me more of it and I'm clicking on things of... Michael escaping his own beheading, which yeah, is a yeah, story yeah. I really wish you told me. Um, yeah, but, yeah, well, we can, yeah. <laughs> it sounds scary. I don't want to make you relive it. Um, but, you know, every morning, this algorithmic Facebook feed, there's a fantastic website called Red Feed, Blue Feed, where you can click on one particular topic and it splits the page in half and it shows you oh, a Facebook, cool. it shows you a Facebook cool. feed from people who only follow All conservative right, well, commentators. Now, now you've opened a whole Pandora's box that you should have opened an hour ago, but... <laughs> I had to get the war stories out of the way. Yeah, well, how look, much time do we have? Ah, uh, look, you know. Okay, we're good. I, I, I'm I'm very very down um, on the nature of our information and news consumerism. Right, there was once upon a time where the only sources of our news was the daily, the morning newspaper, ABC Radio, and the six pm bulletin, and that was our news. Right, and the people who were running those organisations selected what we needed to know and what we didn't need to know. And there was not much option beyond that. Today is the exact opposite problem. We are inundated, bombarded. We have tsunamis of information washing over us. Our problem is figuring out which is real and which is not. So ultimately, we're forced to turn to brands, presumably online, that we can trust. And one must choose what you can trust. For me, it's like the BBC, it's CNN, it's the Australian ABC. More than ever in the history of humanity, I mean, since the advent of the printing press, there's an obligation upon us individually, particularly as members of a democracy, to be discerning. Citizenship now is more demanding than it's ever been in the history of liberal democracies. Right? Because we need to, to distill the fucking bullshit and get down to the kernels of the truth. Now, the problem is, as you say, with your clickbait and your, your artificial intelligence of Facebook and Christ knows what else, it's going to keep feeding you more of the kind of slanted news that you like to hear. It sees that you click on it. It knows what you're afraid of. So you're not going to hear the other stuff. Well... I don't want to hear anything that challenges my view of the world, Michael. That's the whole point. I don't, so, want, I don't want to see. I, I like driving my 
my fucking ski boat with a V8 350 Chev in it. I don't want to hear that the emissions might be hurting people on the other side of the world. So we become bankrupted citizens. So citizenship now takes effort. And we don't like effort. No. Right? And, okay, my sister, she doesn't want to watch the news and all the sad stories. I'm not asking her to. But you have to be discerning. Just because some throwback says it on Twitter doesn't mean it's true. We need to be discerning. There is a moral imperative upon each and every one of us now to exercise our intellects. And we've never been fans of that and we've never been good at it. But that's the crisis point that we're at societally. It does play a little into what you spoke about before um, in that within us there is the power to do great harm and there's also the power to do great good. And the the, the impetus to action caused by anger is very – it's kept us alive. Oh, it's very – And angry angry people click. But it's so easy to manipulate. But, I mean, it can be left or right, you know. Liberals can, you know, the the machines will know that you're a left of centre liberal and will keep feeding you those points of view. If you're a right of centre conservative, it'll keep feeding you that point of view. That opens you to manipulation. Do you want to be manipulated? I know I don't, but it's going to take effort. And, you know, it's an overblown you know, overly dramatic example and it's not to be quoted and not to be taken taken um, um, literally. But, my God, how do you think the German people in the 20s and 30s were herded to war? It was bit by bit by bit with tailor-made pieces of information that excluded anything that was counter to the narrative. What's happening now through our personal preferences and these software sort of engineered machines that tailor to our preferences, that's exactly what we're doing. We're listening only to narratives that suit our beliefs or that, you know, that we're being sort of lured into deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole to the exclusion of all else. We are exposing ourselves to bankruptcy and failure and it's happening drip by drip in a way that none of you are noticing. It takes effort and we're not good at that. How, what's one thing people can do today that they can start to move away from that drip and move their way out from underneath that dripping tap? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm... Turn off Facebook? Well, I'm a Luddite. I don't even have Facebook. I don't have Instagram. I don't do Twitter. Um, you know, I'm a hermit who lives in a cave, so don't, don't ask me. <laughs> um, just step outside your intellectual comfort zone. Don't keep reading the one website. Don't keep reading, you know, the one Twitter. I don't know. It's question. Don't believe a fucking thing you read or you're told. <laughs> There's the T-shirt for this episode. I love it. <laughs> All right. So, final final tangent. Um, you mentioned before that this new series on Nat Geo was written by uncensored with Michael Ware, which is bullshit because they censored you saying fuck. Oh yeah, I know you got it. Thank you. <laughs> the great irony. It's full of beep 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 beep. Well done. You're the first to get it. But if I'm rocking up at a biker rally in Moscow and there's propane cannons, yeah, I would I'm say, say fuck. fuck. 
Well, I'm going to say that's fucking awesome. It was. Yeah. It was fucking amazing. Um, who who wouldn't be but, lured by that? But look, I joined Putin's biker gang. I chase Iranian spies across Europe. I go to Papua New Guinea to find men who are still burning women alive at the stake for being witches. They sent me to New York Fashion Week. I went to the last days of Fidel Castro's Cuba. I go to the deep south. I met the last king of Africa. And I went and stalked celebrities with paparazzi. That's the series. Um, And it's all one conversation about the nature of us. You mentioned that you work very closely with your wife on this. Yes. Yes, she's the... This will, you know, seem strange to most men, but the wife is the brains of the operation. Um, I I married uh, an American woman. She was the Einstein Fellow at Columbia University. She was a loose fellow. She worked at Rand. She worked at Brookings. I met her when she was running Newsweek magazine. I lured her to Brisbane and knocked her up. We made a film that won a bunch of awards. <laughs> and then Nat Geo was stupid enough to give us the money to make this episode. The woman is a living genius. She's the smartest person I've ever met. And she's the greatest unsung female heroine that I know on the planet. There'd be people listening to this who have heard bits of familiarity in your voice and gone, that reminds me of my fella. Um, what would you say to the women listening about things that she does that can that can comfort you and nurture you when you are in the? Well, you know, I, you know, I'm a man who lives in a crisis of confidence, and she was fabulous. The one thing she just kept saying, um, often without any justification, was, "I won't let you fail." And you know what? That got me through days I didn't think I'd see the sunset. I won't let you fail. And I'd like to think that in my own pitiful, pathetic, hopelessly pointless way, I return the favour. That would be, that would be, fuck all my awards, fuck all the things I've done, that would be my greatest achievement. You, uh, you have kids? Yes. As a dad, as a parent, I've only recently become a parent. Oh, wow. But she's, <laughs> but she's 13. Yeah. Oh, there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm only, I'm, only, I'm only four years in, three years into my parenting experience, but oh, she's 13 years God. old. Oh, God. Put it this way. When it comes to kids, I've got a 14-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. Some days I want to go back to war to have a rest. <laughs> when you what, – what do you tell your kids about the world? Well, the two-and-a-half-year-olds – too young to know anything except mummy's fantastic. And the 14-year-old's a very deep-thinking, sensitive little dude who for the first eight years of his life, his daddy was at war, like literally the whole first eight years. And somehow or other, they still believe that life is possible. And some days, just being in the same room with them is all that gets me through. So I haven't got much to tell them. They tell me. They tell me. You've mentioned this a little bit, so I'd, I'd just like to get out on this. There, there may be some people listening that... There could be people listening no, to this? There, there may be there, people... Really? That, people listen to your show? Yes, they do. Really? There may be people My listening... My God, what's wrong with you people? There may be people listening that can identify with some of the darkness you've mentioned, identify mm. with some of the days that you thought, 
this might I might not see the end of this day. Yeah, yeah, and that is, you know, I, I'm, you know, yeah, 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 I, I can yeah, relate to that. Yeah. What would you say to those people who find themselves in that situation? Oh, Christ, I don't know. It's a very individual answer, but we just have to tough it out. You know what? It may be, it may be our lot in life just to suffer through it because it's not for us. It's for the ones around us. I wrote a very famous story for Newsweek. Um, American veterans after the war were killing themselves at the rate of one every 90 minutes. So for my now wife, when she was running Newsweek, I wrote a piece that started with, I should be dead, I wish I was. And I talked about how desperately I just wanted it, all the pain to end. But what kept me here was them. And if it's my fate to have to suffer this fucking existence so that it, it doesn't hurt upon them, then that's my lot. And in accepting that, the hardest part was learn, was accepting to live. That was a bitch. That fucking hurt. But you know what? Every now and then, life kicks back a little reward for that. And I'm telling you, just being in the room with my two-and-a-half-year-old, that's it. That's everything. That's what keeps me here. It's worth it, man. As I said to the soldiers at the end of this story, with no expectation in mind, let me simply, humbly say, don't. I can't thank you enough, man. Good on you, Digger. Thank you, Michael. Sweet, brother. was Michael Ware. You can see his new series on National Geographic right now. It's called Michael Ware Uncensored. He's also got a film called Only the Dead, which you can find anywhere that you find your films. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, if there was anything listening in that that uh, was difficult for you to hear or anything that's haunting you, you can just call uh, Lifeline in Australia, 13 11 14, or anywhere in the world that you are, find somebody to talk to, because don't be powerless about it. This week, don't don't be powerless. Take control. Talk to who you need to talk to. Take care of what you need to take care of because we won the lottery and life is too incredible to not enjoy it. So until we talk next week, look after yourself, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. AdWanted UK is the provider of single-source media data for agencies, media owners, brands and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader from AdWanted UK.